Hey guys. To another podcast and our ability to host remote guests like tonight. Wonderful remote guests. He He's got technology. John, you know, John has a cup too. He can remote clink us and we're remote good. Clink. Um, so so tonight we're we're talking to John Davis and and this is uh, I, I know John from from the past we've done a, a number of um, lectures together like or like events where we were both speakers and so I've had the I've had the pleasure of being able to speak to him about his work in the past he's uh, um, you know comes from the legal industry he was a prosecutor in the past and he's devoted himself uh, rather vehemently to um, trying to draw attention to false accusations and wrongful convictions. So it's a pleasure to have him join us here on the podcast today. Thank John. you for joining us so much. That's great. Uh, again, it's my privilege to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about how it is you came to start writing books. I kept my mouth shut for about 45 years in the legal profession. <laughs> and I, I was. That's a long time. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was in and out of the government and uh, tried more cases than you could you would believe. I'd be over a thousand cases. Well, yeah, close to a thousand cases. And I began to realize after uh, I, I matured in the profession and had enough trials and and had my head handed to me on a plate by a really good defense counsel that there was more to. Uh, understanding what's happening in the criminal justice system than just reading the police reports, uh, filing charges, and and uh, plea bargaining. That's so, just um, not to interrupt you, but that is such a good point because this is one of the things that I've witnessed and that we try to say too is like without like the cross examination is one of the most wonderful tools in the justice system, the legal system, in order to get to the truth. And, and what you just said really, I thought was really well worded in terms of making that point. Well, absolutely. And I learned one of the things I learned, especially in controversial cases like sex assault cases, was as a prosecutor to do my cross-examining of the witness before we get to trial because uh, your whole case revolves around that cross-examination. And frequently, uh, I, I don't want to say all the time, because by the time you get to the trial phase, you've got a close case usually, not always. Uh, it's a fairly close case, and the case does turn on that victim's or accuser's. Let me, let me call, it, call them accusers, on the accuser's testimony. So what I would find out is that about half the time, when I was getting cases ready for trial, I would find out the accuser had been coached, and but, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't get angry or anything. I just start talking with her. It was almost always a female accuser. So how, how do you come to that? Because because we've se we've seen this before too, where there's certain language things that start coming out, where they're phrases that are learned phrases. Be it the person has looked something up on the internet or read articles, and you know. Uh, mainstream media or whatever of, of advocacy groups and they, they start to use these phrases when you say that you started to realize they were coached what was it that made you come to that conclusion well it was a it was a child sexual assault case and we had uh, I, I decided to go to trial i was young and inexperienced uh, wasn't that young but or that inexperienced but i was inexperienced in sexual assault cases we went to a trial and uh the defense counsel the other time on the other side had first of all uh, excellent expert witnesses on the phenomenon of false memory and implanted memory, right. and second had it was just a master at cross examination, 
And I realized about halfway through the trial that uh, uh, after the accuser uh, was cross-examined that this was not a valid case. Um, I, I After that, uh, I, I did not let that trial go to a jury. Um, I actually dismissed the case voluntarily at halftime and um, uh, got criticized for it. But the, the fact was she had been coached. The defense counsel brilliantly brought that out. We started a policy where no one could talk to the accuser unless we had a videotape of it. And that really cut down on the false cases that were coming in the door because what we call in the United States victim advocates, I mean, they were literally pumping these children full of false memories, uh, narratives that they would they read about in, in books that they expected child uh, victims to be relating to the court and things like that. So we demanded that if you know, don't don't even uh, uh, bring us a case unless you've got videotapes of all contact by law enforcement, victim advocates, counselors, therapists, uh, expert witnesses. Okay. And we just put our foot down. That, that cut out a lot of the, the false cases. And this, this gets into a, a thing that we've talked about a fair bit as well in terms of credibility versus reliability. So what you're talking about is how, um, how advocacy groups or, you know, um, therapists or whatever can talk to somebody and then influence their testimony in a way where the complainant, we, we instead of accuser, we'll call them complainants, can actually believe something to be true, but at the same time, they could be, it can be unreliable because their, their, their testimony has been infected by the input from other people. Absolutely. If you read Elizabeth Loftus, and I highly recommend it. She's a few years older than I am, and I've been reading her for 30 years. She's an expert on false memory, on memory uh, in general. She testified at the Weinstein trial in New York. Unfortunately, the judge put handcuffs on her. She couldn't testify. Uh, I, 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 don't, I better not get started because I, I, I don't know if Weinstein is innocent or guilty, uh, but I'm confident he did not get a fair trial. So she was... Uh, she is an expert, and what she brought out is that there are two kinds of memory. Um, there are memory that is easily affected by emotion, drugs, narcotics, uh, you know, uh, intervening events, and very little of our memory survives those factors over time. And then there's what's called core memory, which is an uh, if you have an actual traumatic event, uh, then you have even a child will have a very, very vivid recollection of the uh, sensory information. So what I learned to focus on as a prosecutor was, okay, he grabbed you. What do you mean he dragged you into the room? Well, he, he took me by the arm. Did it hurt? Yes. Uh, how hard was it? Well, it was hard enough. I didn't think I could get away and I, I'd be hurt if I did. You know, that's credible evidence which you get as a false accuser is well he 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 put his hand in, in my private part okay well well how did he do that was is it his right hand or his left hand um um were you wearing clothing at the time how did you yeah, get your clothing yeah, off yeah, they can't answer yeah. anything yeah so i learned as a prosecutor to focus on that evidence before i took a case to trial and, and yeah. that took me a couple of losses where you know 
uh, I realized I really screwed up by going to trial on it. In, in those child cases, who were the defendants? Were they relate? Were they relatives, a, a father? Was this a divorce situation? This was, the, the, the first one I just documented to you was, and the woman was trying to get the guy uh, out of her, the girl's life. I, I, no, I don't remember if she... No, she he, she was his natural daughter, and it was very much attached to a divorce case um, where she was splitting up with him, and she didn't want him around. So she went in to – she actually called our office and accused him of sexual assault. Well, you know, it, it we, we, we did – somebody else filed charges. That was where my, – my job was to go to trial. You know, I didn't really have much to do with filing the charges. I'd get the uh, I'd get the file on my desk, you know, four to six weeks before the the trial date, and then I would start evaluating the evidence. So, so in this particular case, I smelled something fishy because she had gotten a restraining order based on just uh, an accusation narrative. There was no solid evidence. When we asked, we asked to interview the child. We did it at what they called the Child Advocacy Center, where they had a very relaxed setting where the, a child could be videotaped with one-way mirror and and uh, very relaxed with the uh, with the law enforcement looking on and the defense counsel, et cetera. And um, very often we would find in that relaxed setting that the child was not likely to be telling the truth. It could take 20, 30, or 40 minutes, but occasionally, I should say occasionally, maybe one out of five times, the child will admit that they've been coached. Well, that didn't really happen, but, uh, you know, um, and that helped me filter out the bad cases. So when I went to trial, I had, I had a high uh, conviction rate. Uh, compared to the national average, it was about 87%. National average is about 62 to 65%. And that low conviction rate is due to inexperienced prosecutors who really don't care what they're doing. They just want to be heroes, um, collect trophies, and things like that. So that's where defense counsel like yourselves are really fulfilling an important role in the justice system in terms of getting at the truth. So what other sexual, what other type of sexual assault cases did you start to have your disillusionment with as a prosecutor that led you to feel, you know, you're dealing with a lot of wrongful accusations? Uh, there was a guy, he had spent most of his adult life in prison and he had been a Marine Corps reconnaissance and uh, he had severe problems. Uh, we found out eventually that he had neurological problems, which is not uncommon in the criminal court. And uh, I, I always screened for those problems uh, to see if I could work a plea deal where we could address medical and neuro neurological problems before we went into uh, uh, the criminal system. But, uh, and he had, uh, when, I, when I read the report, I said, my God, this looks like something you'd see on the front pages or in a television movie uh, on, on the horrors of, of tempted rape. Uh, he did have sex with her four or five times, choked her repeatedly. This is from the police file. And um, they, okay, so 
make a long story short, I got close to trial. Nobody wanted to try this case. I was the only one who was willing to try <laughs> the judge unethical as hell sent me word through another judge that she didn't want to try it <laughs> and i should plea it out i mean this is what goes on in the united states i think uh paul your your comment was you know the system in the united states is designed to crush the defendant and it is i think i use that term it's a useful term so anyway so in this case you know i thought well okay i know he's a neurological problem i kind of have to take this to trial because it was all over the news and uh, I was getting a lot of pressure from victim advocates and, you know, everybody else. Police didn't want to go to trial because it was in the middle of the hunting season and they didn't want to spare two uh, officers for the trial. I, don't get me started. So anyway, um, <laughs> I, so when I started to look into it, I called up the defense counsel who used to be the DA and he was, uh, and we got along pretty well. He said, look, here's what was going on. They were both doing drugs. She gets off on asphyxia. And it's true, they had sex, and he was choking her and the whole bit. Um, and she was really upset about it because he got out of, it got, quote, it got out of control. And I can understand how that happens. So uh, I said, okay, well, there's two sides here. And then I worked out a plea deal with him where he would plea with a five-year cap, which means he would do probably with with the prejudgment detention, probably do seven or eight months, and would get the neurological assistant he needed in prison. Okay. Was he guilty? I don't know. A trial might have, uh, a, a jury may very well have acquitted him of the charges, but I felt, you know, while he's already spent most of his adult life and we've got an opportunity to get the state to pay for the um, uh, costs of re rehabilitating him, hopefully, and, and he can get uh, very expensive neurological assistance. So uh, that, that seemed to work out for everybody, but typically the plea agreement in the system in the United States, is, as you said, designed to crush the defendant and force a plea. John, question for you. So you've described coaching. I'm sure you've seen a lot of patterns. What are the top five motivators you've noticed behind false accusations? Coaching is one. Well, uh, co coaching, yes. Then you've got false memory. Right. And if you, if you look at the hard neuroscience statistics, you've got about a 90% probability that... Uh, a memory of a sexual assault that's more than five years is about a 90% probability it's a false memory. There's a, yes, there's a clinical psychologist in the UK. I uh, can't remember her name off the top of my head. Julia, I'll think of it in a minute. And she did an experiment. Now, this is should be insightful because Elizabeth Loftus in the United States in Los Angeles has uh, similar experiments and has written uh, profusely about them. Where anyway, this Julia Shaw—that's her name. She's a psychologist in London, and she did an experiment where she took a young man, and she, you know, uh, lied to him. This was part of the experiment, and she got clearance before doing this, and said, you know, uh, she said, I, I, I wanted to interview you for this memory study, but, you know, I talked to your best friend when you were fourteen years old, and and she said you raped her. 
And the boy, of course, was astounded. And make a long story short, it took her two sessions, 20 minutes each, to convince him and implant a false memory of him raping his best friend when he was 14. And the girl, you know, they, she as soon as he said it uh, she, and made her point, she no, he never said that, and and your girlfriend said that never happened. And, These well. memory studies are fascinating. You know, it's a and like you mentioned, they had she had clearance because that that is one of the problems now. With there were a lot of really important memory studies done in the past, but they've been deemed unethical now because you can't implant false memories. You know, you know that are negative or whatever. So there's a lot of restrictions on on what we can and can't do to try and uncover how memory works, but. I want to just take you to sort of a different uh, area of discussion, which is when I first met you, you had two books published that I was aware of. One is yes. about false accusations in the 21st century. And then the next one was how to avoid a false accusation. Yes. Right? How to, yeah, how to avoid false accusations of rape, uh, which there's, you know, I'm sure you could make a million dollars on the internet if you could, <laughs> definitively, <laughs> could definitively tell people how to, how to do that. But you've come out with a number of books since then, which I'm really intrigued by, which tend, you know, have, have focused a little bit on pointing out women's violence and the fact that women do rape men sometimes. Oh, yes. So can you tell me how it is you got to, to writing more in that nature? Well, it, it goes hand in hand with my work. I, I still work. I, I'm retired, but I still have a practice in the United States Supreme Court. I limit it pretty much to that. I. I, I, I loved trial work. I, I would still love it, but I just don't have the stamina anymore to to be certain I'm doing a good job. So I do the Supreme Court. I just filed a brief about five days ago, the United States Supreme Court on domestic violence and interpersonal violence. In the United States, it's assumed that it's a gendered crime, that there are no women who perpetrate sexual violence, and there are no women who perpetrate domestic violence. And I am serious. Well, and so, I know well, we, we're not so shocked by we've, that. We've, <laughs> you and I have both have have both spoken at events with Do, uh, Dr. Donald Dutton, who has a, a really yeah. wonderful book, and he's part of a big body of of uh, you know uh, researchers who've, who've brought to light that violence tends to be reciprocal. So yeah, and and I know Don Dutton's testified in the United States as well as Canada. So so it is kind of shocking to me that you say that that, that they don't recognize it at all still. That's... Well, it's amazing. They, <clears throat> the Department of Justice had appealed this case to the United States. I'm not going to go into the details that bore you to death, but the United States Department of Justice appealed it, and they got 30 amicus briefs from women's organizations, the Catholic Church, and everything. <laughs> Qua claiming Catherine that McKinnon. <laughs> domestic violence the leading cause of death for women between the ages of 15 and 44. Okay. I'm, I'm serious. And uh, that domestic violence and that domestic violence is, uh, what do we call it here? Femicide? Femicide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they they refer to it in Canada as femicide. In other words, men kill women okay. and it's, it's not homicide. And, it's and they, femicide. And they claim that, well, men kill 4,000 women a year. So I, you know, I've, and I, I know better. I, I spend a week and do the research. Yes, men do kill 4,000 women a year. Women kill 3,000 men a year. And in addition, in 50% of the cases, when men kill women, they're acting in self-defense. Okay. Because 50% of domestic violence is reciprocal, where both parties are, are committing violence against each other. 
And as Don Dutton points yeah. out, yeah. where it's not where where it's uh, only one sided, it tends to be slightly more often the woman who's the one who, who's the aggressor. Sure, yeah. she'll she'll come up behind it's him the and start from whacking Don him with a bludgeon, you know, and he'll pull out a gun and shoot her. Okay, well, yes, but that's a hell of a good self defense case, um, at least in the United States. In most states in the United States, the prosecutor, if if the self defense is raised then the prosecutor must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was not self-defense. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know what the, what it is in Canada. It, it's similar, uh, yeah. except it's the, the, the use of force is a little bit different. It's got to be proportionate, but in any event, it's, it's very similar. Once you raise the possibility. But, but, yeah, but statistically speaking, you, you, you found through your research then that there is, you know, violence in this case, domestic violence, is not one particular gender it goes both ways oh absolutely it, it's about equal i mean you do in the terms of the the killing but again women initiate according to a harvard medical school study which is unimpeachable uh women initiate the domestic violence in the united states 70 percent of the time so under domestic violence theory that makes them the aggressor that makes them the perpetrator how often do you do you find women being prosecuted for domestic violence in the United States? Rarely. They're rarely even arrested. The police in the United States, and, uh, and people will think that I'm making this up, but I'm not. I saw it. Police are trained to arrest the man on a domestic violence call, even if he's the victim. Even if he's got a knife in his stomach. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know cases where, yeah. where the guy's actually it's got a knife. It's not quite that bad, but it's, you know, if she shows any marks at all, like if she fell down and bruised herself and calls the police, they arrest the man. No matter what he says, no matter what happened, even if he's got blood and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in many jurisdictions, um, dual arrests are forbidden so that the woman doesn't get arrested, just the man. That's not true in Canada anymore. They, no, we, we, have, we have cases where there are dual arrests where you'll have both if the police can't determine who's the aggressor, they'll arrest both. And we do have some cases where female perpetrators are arrested. And I happen to have two cases involving uh, women who are charged with homicide, both in domestic context. But it's still the rarity, and we're still fighting up against the idea that you know it's an 80% male phenomenon. Um, and there's no real good studies going on in Canada, frankly, that you could have as valid studies to really test the waters and what the statistics are. But here, here's something I know that you're, John, I know that you're familiar with this as well because of some of the conferences we've gone to together. But there's a specific crime where in which a woman kills her own child, her own baby, and it has a special crime name for it. It's called infanticide. Right? Yeah, we have that in Canada. Yes. But if a, man, if, a man kills, if a man kills an infant, it's called murder. Yeah, it is murder. <laughs> it is. But yeah, but we call it something different when a woman does it. So is this something you've looked uh, in, into? In the United States, women kill four times as many children as men. So if you add in children into the domestic violence equation, women kill kill more in domestic violence than men. Okay, yeah, because but, but we but, leave the children out. Yeah, so I mean, I sadly enough, I had two of those cases myself. So, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, um, there are psychiatric disorders that uh, a female after given birth can experience set aside from postpartum uh, depression it can become psychotic 
and in fact and then you have you know you can have it reduced to an infanticide as a result of a psychotic or a disorder or you know a depressive disorder that rises to that state and and it's legitimate yes keep in mind too that men also have this disorder uh, uh after uh, postnatal um, depression um i'm not sure it's a valid it, well, I, i'm not going to uh, disturb what it, whatever y- your defense was because you have to look at each case individually but uh typically uh it's being used a lot and i think sometimes being used as an excuse uh for uh women killing children when if it was a man he would not have that defense available even though theoretically he he has a high, uh, just as high a probability of that i just think that some of some of the focus of your work in, in your books kind of coincides with this like we like joseph brought up femicide before and then we have this infanticide thing. I just, I take exception when crimes are relabeled depending on the gender of the person who's involved. I, I think crimes are crimes and then I just, well, I, I find it very curious. I find it very curious. So, so if it's a murder involving a, a newborn or a baby, they're not necessarily charged with infanticide. They're charged with either first or second degree murder. So I just right. want to be clear. I, I don't want to mislead anybody. So they're charged with murder. Um, infanticide. This is a good point to make because having been on the internet prior to working with you and stuff, yeah. the infanticide, like there's all these memes about please don't throw your baby in a dumpster and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of people who who who, who I think misrepresent what infanticide actually yeah, is. So, so no, this is get, really no, useful. Women who kill children in Canada get charged with murder. Right. Um, and, and infanticide is a lesser included offense where you have a lesser penalty if you're able to meet a defense on a balance of probability to establish the psychiatric disorder. So um, they're very much It's different than NCR, though. It's different than NCR. If you can prove a full-on NCR... not criminally responsible. Not criminally <laughs> responsible, then that would be something else. But, but there are cases where women go down on first or second-degree murder um, for killing of children, and it leaves aside that period of time shortly after the birth. So I... Unfortunately, my career, I've had those cases, so they're very, very difficult to deal with, but but they do go down on murder. But femicide is... Let's say... I'm sorry, we don't really have a lesser included offense like infanticide, but it typically will get kicked down to negligent uh, homicide or manslaughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sort of moving on from that, I mean, you've done such a large body of work with respect to, you know, wrongful accusations. Like, my curiosity with you really is about... You know, as a former prosecutor who's now delved into this area, you know, what are your what are your feelings and what's your 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 very valid studied opinion on when, you know, we're we're faced with the myth that no that there's no false sexual allegations by adult women against men. Well, it's a because that that goes on here. It's a it's a (laughs) problem for all of us because. It's gotten to the point of hysteria. The epicenter of it is England. And it always has been. The English culture has always had hysteria about sex uh, uh, misconduct. And it goes back 2,000 years to the, the legend of uh, Utica, where they said, well, yeah, the Romans raped my teenage daughters. Well, the, the historians say that never really happened. That's just the legend. But it was how you motivate 70,000 high testosterone young men to do stupid things like burn down London, kill a quarter million people, and attack the Roman Empire. 
Okay, and and we we've used that in recent wars. Uh, you know, a a, a big gorilla and a, a pickerstaub, you know, carrying a young woman away. You know, join up now, the U.S. Army. Don't let this beast. You know, and, and, and so it's a cultural to a large extent. Then you have the media that's been exploiting sex for 50 years and yeah. portraying it as something that's not, and that's not real, that all men are sex-crazed maniacs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you add those two things together, and a lot of the false accusations are arising out of that that hysteria. Yeah, well, like, like you mentioned, too, it's just like, uh, you know, men rising up in arms to to defend the reputation of a woman or something. I mean, that's, as you know, from, from our history and, and the things we've talked about before, that's a whole other nest that you could, you could dive into in, in terms of how women get men to and why why men like to champion women and stuff like that. But um, and, and, and it varies from man to man. It's a productive uh, test that you uh, a, a test that could be done in, by clinical psychologists, what is the protective degree of protectiveness that a man has in yeah. his personality? It's, no, it's a fascinating and, and important area of, of conversation, which we'd love to have you back again so we can talk about it more. Is this where we're running a little bit short on time? So um, leave, leave us with one piece, you know, one wise comment from you before we let you go. Words of wisdom, John. <laughs> Words of wisdom. Um, false accusations of rape are the mirror image of rape itself. It's designed to uh, exert power and control over the victim of the false accusation and to do it by proxy through the system. That's what I'd leave you with. Well said, because yeah, the, the, the devastating effect on, on the accused person you know, when they're falsely accused is, is nobody seems to even care anymore. And, and it's so important because it's, it's life destroying. And in fact, sometimes as we've discussed, you know, people kill people themselves. Kill themselves. Over right. Yeah. Oh, sure. It's completely devastating. Well, can't thank you enough for having you on. We'd like to have you back if that'd be okay. Love to hope we get another chance sometime soon. Let's and I hope you, you, you have a good week. You too. And be well. And we look forward to speaking to you soon. He's facing very similar things to what we are. Right. And, um, you know, whether, you know, it comes from a hysteria that's it's, it's rooted in culture or history or not, I, I think it's more a, a bit of a, a dynamic which has developed uh, of recent where we just, there's just this shift um, and to, to try and just negate that there's any type of false accusation. And, and when we have people who are on talking about it, who studied it in the United States, we've got memory experts, and then for for people to continue to promulgate the notion that there are no false accusations is just to deny, reality. like I said, like that the sun right. sun will rise tomorrow. But right. but I think I think there has been for a long time, not just recently. I think there is an hysteria around sexuality, and that's you know whether you know who controls sexuality is like there's always an obsession around sexuality, and I think <laughs> for like like I've said before, feminism fought to advance so that women can come to the stage as a, an equal partner and i think we've really gone backwards where we've come to this point again where we're just saying women are always victims, oh, victims women are all over and, again yeah and all this other stuff and it's completely the opposite goal of feminism well you know it's and a it's a shame when it's driven by hysteria right when and a, political agendas sometimes it, it's, it's a not a conspiracy it's a shame when there's a breakthrough because there's a lot of positive things that came through to understanding certain power dynamics and people who did exert influence and did assault people and and commit criminal offenses but then you go too far and then yeah. and then we we litigate it in the media 
and then we cancel, cancel people people. without due process or evidence. You know and why? Because so, there's a lot of money to be made by being a victim nowadays. There's a lot of money. It's a, it's a big money industry. Well, the industry itself is big, is it not? Psychologists, social workers, <laughs> advocates. I mean, yeah. you've got an entire we found system. found a bunch of cases where there's fraud from women's groups that are shelters or whatever, and they've all been you know, using the system to get money. Like there, there's actually been cases that have been prosecuted on this. There's a lot of money involved in this and we have to keep that in mind. Yes, there are real victims. Yes, we should care about them. But it's the same thing as just don't throw your money away to some charity because they say they're doing something. It's like, mm-hmm. you have to understand that, that there's sometimes a little bit more going on behind what it is you're being told, why you're being told it, and, and where all this money is actually being spent. So what are his books again, in case any of our viewers wanna so Grab well, he, them he's or... got he's got six books that are listed on uh, on yeah, they're uh, Amazon. on Amazon, yeah. And uh, you know he's got how to avoid false accusations of rape, which I'm sure everybody would like to. His name is John Davis, spelled like you would like you would expect J O H N D A V I S. John Davis, and if so, if you look that up with um, false accusations, you will find his entire list of of books available on Amazon. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, yeah, I've known John for like probably seven years now and he's wonderful. He's, He's a sincere advocate. And he's been doing a wonderful job. And well, so, so on, that note, on that note, thank you for a great show. And thank you, everybody, for viewing and, and watching. And if you... Uh, where's, where's the, the pillow? pillow? There's one right here. Do it, like, Diana. Do it. Oh, I love pillows. You, you do the pillow talk. <laughs> you know, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and also share. And, uh, you know, we, we mean that sincerely. No, and we're getting mail, actually, from people who are watching the program. So I just got one I'm going to open up. So keep them coming. We love it. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Yeah, have so a good I just night. I love the pillows. I love the pillows. <laughs> it's cushy. It's very cushy. <laughs>